Well, good evening. Good to see you this evening. James chapter 5 tonight. We're in the last chapter. We're going to be spending the next three weeks finishing up our study of the book of James. Tonight, we're going to just look at the first six verses. But I do want to direct your attention to a phrase from verse 7. Because this phrase sort of casts a shadow, if you will, in a good way over the entire chapter. In verse 7, James says, So be patient, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's return. I want you to keep those four words in mind tonight, tomorrow, next week, next couple weeks, until the Lord returns. Because what James wants to point out is that everything he's going to talk about in this chapter is to be seen through the perspective of hope that the Lord's coming back one day. And that you and I need to live in a certain way right up until the Lord comes. With this in mind, that sometimes life on earth can be really difficult, really hard. In fact, that's why he says in verse 7, be patient. But what he wants to remind us of is, but the Lord's coming back. And that's not a hope so, that's a sure so. And when the Lord returns, because that word until is a time word, everything changes. Everything changes when the Lord comes back. And not only will everything change, but everything will change forever. Sometimes on earth, even as Christians, we can live very short-sighted. We can sort of get trapped in the moments of life and somehow begin to feel that this is just the way it's always going to be. And James wants to remind us, until the Lord comes, then everything changes. Now, with that in mind, James tonight wants to talk to us about managing our wealth. And this is something that I think it's close to James' heart again because of his own upbringing and even the influence of his own brother. Remember, James grew up in a very poor family. Mary and Joseph didn't have a lot, so, so James would not have grown up with a lot of extra stuff. And even when his brother became a young adult, even Jesus said, the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. So he saw even in his brother that for Jesus, it was never about the here and now. It was never about material possessions. It was always about living for eternal things. Now, I want to say this before we get into this passage. James is pretty strong here. In fact, that's why a lot of even pastors and teachers avoid this passage altogether, because it's, it's, it's pretty scathing if you just read it on the surface. James doesn't pull any punches. But James, as well as the rest of the Bible and God himself, is not against wealth or things. 
What God is trying to teach all of us is wealth carries responsibilities. And that one day, we are going to be accountable to God for how we have managed our earthly resources. For Paul says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of our life on earth. Romans chapter 12. So James is simply reminding us, guys, gals, let's manage even our resources in light of eternity. Let's live life in the moment and be in the moment so that we can squeeze everything out of the moment that we are in, but let's prioritize our life not based on the moment, but based on forever, based on eternal things. And James here is, I'm going to wrap this overview up in just a moment, says that wealth can do three things to us in these six verses. Wealth can make us arrogant. Notice verse 5, you've lived indulgently and luxuriously on the earth. You fatten your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Wealth can make us cruel. Verse 4, look, the pay you've held back from the workers who mowed your fields cries out against you, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And wealth can make us ruthless. You have condemned, verse 6, and murdered the righteous person, although he does not resist you. We'll talk more about all of these. But James' overarching thing tonight is, remember, the Lord's coming back, and everything's going to change. Therefore, make sure that your treasure is in heaven. Because if our treasure is on earth, we're going to go from it one day when we go to glory. But if our treasure is in heaven, then we go to it, which is why Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven so that our real treasure, including Jesus himself, is something and someone that we're going to, not going away from. For those who accumulate wealth on earth and live for the moment and live for material things and physical things, once they die, everything they live for, they're separated from for all of eternity. So that's where James is coming from. Again, many of the characters in the Bible were very wealthy people. But God always is saying, if you have been blessed with earthly wealth, Realize you're responsible for that and how you've managed it. Because as we see in these six verses, wealth can be mismanaged as well as wealth can be misused. And in this passage, either by, if you're a business owner, not paying your employees a fair wage or using your wealth and, and, and your money to be able to manipulate the justice system, verse and James is trying to caution against that by, look at the very beginning. He starts out by saying, come now. <laughs> Remember when Jesus used the word woe? <laughs> this is James's woe. It implies disapproval. It is a phrase to get people's attention. He's basically saying, 
please pay attention to what I'm about to say. And then he says, you rich. Those of you who have an abundance of material and earthly wealth. Now, I want to share something before we move any further into this passage. Because even for myself, sometimes I need to get a perspective. Because sometimes, you know, we may in America think, no matter what our yearly income is, that we're not rich because we're comparing ourselves to someone like Bill Gates. And obviously, compared to Bill Gates, yeah, maybe we're not rich. But let me share some statistics with you that may sort of sober you like it sobered me. If you've ever heard of something called the Global Rich List, this is where I got this information that I want to share with you tonight. If you make $60,000 a year in income, you are in the upper 0.2% of everyone in the world. I didn't say 2%. I said 0.2%. If you make $50,000 a year, you are in the upper 0.3% of everyone in the world. Let's go down to 40,000. You're in the upper 0.6% of everyone in the world. Let's drop it all the way to 20,000 a year. You're in the upper 4%. That means 86% of the rest of the world doesn't have what you have just by making 20,000 a year. If you just make a meager 10,000 a year, you are still in the upper 16% of everyone in the world. The average American household income is $65,000 a year. Average American household. That means every Amer average American household is in the upper 1% of worldly income. It reminds you and I that if we have a cell phone, a computer, a home, a bed, a car, we're rich. We're rich. And we need to remember that. And again, God is not against us having things. But with earthly resources and abundance and wealth comes responsibility. How are we managing what we have? Are we managing it well? Are we investing it in eternal things? Are we doing what even we sung about tonight in our worship set? So let's go back then to James chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and cry aloud over the miseries that are coming on you. Now, I don't pretend that James here is necessarily, in this passage, talking to just Christians. In fact, I personally take it that he's primarily not talking to Christians at this moment. I get that because in verse 6, he says, you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. But I think even if you take this, that he's primarily talking to people who 
don't know the Lord and they're living their lives just for earthly things because then he changes his audience in verse 7 when he says, so be patient, brothers and sisters. So then I think he's primarily directing his thoughts that you and I can still take a lot out of what James is saying, even if he is directing his thoughts in the first six verses to those that don't know God and primarily are living for earthly things. Because again, you and I can all sort of get a wake-up wake call that, you know what, we've been blessed with a lot of stuff. And God holds us and is going to hold us responsible for how we've managed it, what kind of stewards we are. So again, this message still has a lot to say to us as well. Because again, it reminds us, do we keep the Lord's coming and everything changing in mind? Do we live every day in light of that day and how throughout eternity everything's going to be different and the value systems of this world that they live by is going to be totally reversed and what everyone in the world lived for isn't going to matter and that sometimes that they might look at us as Christians who are investing in, you know, Christian service and, and sharing our wealth and, and, and blessing others with our earthly resources and saying, we're fools. But no, one day, again, when the Lord comes back, oh, it's all going to change. And we're going to be glad we live for the Lord and that we invested in eternal things. But he's saying here, by using the terms weep and cry, these are expressions of extreme pain and grief. And he's simply saying, one day, these folks who are living for earthly things and just material things, they're going to have a rude awakening either when they die or when the Lord does come back because everything they live for now is left behind and they have nothing to carry into the next life. That's why he even uses the words miseries. It speaks about a tormented condition. And isn't that what the Lord talks to us about, especially those that do not know him and have a relationship with him, that when they go out into eternity, they're going to be tormented forever and ever? And a lot of times, even as Christians, we think primarily tormented physically. I think it's going to be more tormented spiritually and emotionally. It's like the realization that everything that they grabbed a hold of and clutched onto and, and all the, the, the time and effort and energy that they put into trying to build up their earthly kingdom isn't going to matter forever. And the fact that they were so short-sighted that they lived for these brief few years that James even said last week is like a vapor, and now they've got all of eternity to be tormented by the fact that they had it all wrong and that everything they live for doesn't matter and doesn't count. Because he says, oh, these miseries, they're coming on you, and they're literally going to wash over you. Because he says, first of all, verse 2, your riches, your material wealth and prosperity have rotted. They become useless. Because we live in a day and an age where the world thinks money can solve all our problems. That's what they think. And James is trying to say money can't solve all your problems now, and it's certainly not going to solve eternal things. It means nothing in eternity. Nothing. Did you ever notice that 
Though God doesn't teach us a lot about heaven, that there's never a mention of money in heaven. And are we really going to care? No. No. And then he says, your clothing, obviously it becomes moth-eaten, like Jesus said, it, it becomes ruined over time. Your gold and silver have rusted, become tarnished. And then he says, their rust will be a witness against you. Whoa. Literally, the evidence and proof of how we lived is going to be based on our material possessions and how we use them. And did we hoard them? How much of it do we have? And it's accumulation. It, in a sense, pictures a courtroom and, and all the stuff is going to literally witness as to how we lived our life. He goes on to say, it will consume your flesh like fire. It will eat away and erode your very nature. And we know that's when people get caught up in living for wealth and accumulation of material things and physical things, it's like they get addicted to it. And, and it's like they, they just keep on accumulating because, you know, they never get satisfied and it's, it's never enough and, and, and greed can't, can't be quenched. And it's just one more thing and then one more thing and there's no contentment and it just keeps, it eats away at, at what really matters. And I also think that James is saying here by using the word witness and fire in the same verse, if you remember that passage where Paul teaches that one day our lives are going to be literally tested by fire. And, and, and only the things that we live for that we, we're eternal and for God and for his glory and, and for the good of others, only those things will pass through the fire and make it into eternity. But all the other things that we may live for at times, all those things are going to be burned up and they won't pass through the fire. So again, James is saying, remember, one day all this stuff isn't going to matter. So how are we managing our earthly wealth? Because wealth carries responsibility before God. And we need to make sure that if we're being consumed by something, we're being consumed by our passion for God, by our passion for others, by our love for God, by a love to worship him and witness for him and be in his word and, and to commune with him in prayer and all of these things. This should be what consumes and captivates our heart because where our treasure is, there our heart will be also, Jesus says. Is our heart on earthly things or is it on spiritual and eternal things? These are all the things that either James very directly or by way of implication is talking to all of us about, whether we're a Christian or whether we're not. Because we all need to be reminded of these biblical principles. Then he says, verse 3, it is in the last days that you have hoarded treasure, that you've amassed, that you continue to accumulate earthly things. God does not bless us to hoard and to amass and to accumulate. 
God blesses us so that our needs can be met and so that we can enjoy life and live comfortably and be content, but so that we can have a little bit extra, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, where, where God says, don't glean the corners of your fields. Leave those for others to be blessed by the extra of abundance that you and I have been given. And by the way, we are living in the last days. I get this question a lot. Well, pastor, are we living in the last days? Yeah, because biblically, the last days started with Jesus' first coming. You see, the last days, according to the Bible, is the period between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Remember, the writer of Hebrews says, in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. The last days, according to the Bible and according to God, started when Jesus came to earth the first time. So are we living in the last days? Yeah, in fact, now we're 2,000 years into the last days. James says, in these last days. Well, that was 2,000 years ago. And James even said, we're living in the last days there. So again, I would simply say, as Jesus said, our salvation now, meaning our glorification, the consummation of our salvation now is much nearer than when we first believed. Then he says, look, verse 4, behold, the pay you have held back from the workers who mowed your fields cries out against you. He's saying, look, you were a business owner, and the wages that was due to your employees, you have deprived them from. You have defrauded them, is what the words held back mean. They harvested your fields. And notice, though, what they're doing. They are crying out to God. It's an exclamation for help. Lord, we're not being treated fairly. We're being ripped off. We're being defrauded of what is a fair and just wage. And notice what James says, and this should be an encouragement to all of us, no matter which side of the equation we may find ourselves in, whether we may be on the side where we feel like we're being deprived and defrauded of what's fair, or whether we're the person who's doing it, notice James says, oh, the cries of the reapers have already reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. He's saying, look, all of you who are oppressed can be confident that the Lord has heard your cry. And in his perfect timing, he will intervene. Maybe it will be here on earth, but maybe it won't be until he comes. But here's what we can know for sure as Christians. Injustice will one day be taken care of permanently, no matter what kind of injustice you're talking about. Because when the Lord comes back, that's when justice will reign. And that's the only time true justice will reign over the entire earth. Until then, there is not going to be perfect justice on the earth, because we're talking about human beings. But James is trying to give us all hope by saying, even if you're oppressed and not being treated fairly and you're crying out to the Lord, no, the Lord's already heard you. 
Remember what the Lord even said to Moses? He said, I've heard the cries of my people in Egypt in slavery for hundreds of years. I haven't neglected them, but I'm waiting for my perfect time to send my deliverer to rescue them and deliver them. God will work in his perfect timing, but that doesn't mean he hasn't heard your cries and your prayers. And he will act at the most perfect time. And even if he doesn't act in our lifetime, even if he doesn't reverse some kind of injustice, the one thing, again, we can be sure of is when the Lord comes, everything will be made right. Every injustice will be made right. And justice and truth and righteousness then will reign forever and ever. That's what you and I have hope in. And notice he calls the Lord here, verse 4, the Lord of hosts. This is picturing God as a military warrior, as the divine great warrior going into battle for his people who has everything in his universe at his disposal to use if he so chooses. And when God stands up to fight, those who are on the other side are doomed because God has never lost a battle or war or a fight in his life, and he never will. And James wants to encourage us that the divine warrior is with us. I love Exodus 15.3. It says, the Lord is a divine warrior, a mighty man of war. The Lord is his name, Exodus 15.3. And then there's Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord is in your midst. He is a great warrior who can deliver you. He delights in you. He renews you by his love. He shouts for joy over you. The warrior. If you go through the Bible, you will see that many times God is referred to as a warrior. He will fight for his people. He will fight for the oppressed. He will fight for those who have no one to fight for. And God wants us to hold on to that hope that one day, Justice is coming. One day, fairness is coming. One day, equity is coming. But it may not come until the Lord comes. But we can be sure that when he comes, everything changes. He's the Lord of hosts. Verse 5, you have lived indulgently and luxuriously on the earth, a life of self-indulgence and self-gratification. That's not the way God intended for any of us to live. God intended for us to live selflessly. Again, to share, to bless. We are blessed to be a blessing. And James is saying even 2,000 years ago, I'm saying way too much of people who are, who are enjoying the things of life, but it's just about them. And it's about making themselves feel better and more comfortable and all of that, and they're giving no thought to what maybe they can do to help others. 
Then he says, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. What a vivid picture. I mean, think about it, even today. The skinny cow doesn't have to worry. It's the fat cow that's going to get, you know. And James is saying, he's saying, you, you have made sure that you've not deprived your body, but you have starved your soul. And one day, James is saying, when your life on this earth is over, it's like an animal going to the slaughter. not going to matter. Better to feed your spirit and maybe deprive yourself physically a little bit than to make sure that you've got more than enough physically and materially, but your spirit is starving. Let me even say this, just from the perspective of a pastor. We all need to be reminded of that. I need to be reminded of that. And, and it even has nothing to do even with maybe living for physical, material things. It's just a matter, again, of prioritizing my life and making sure that my spirit and my soul is getting as much attention and as much care and, and the ability to grow as I'm providing for myself physically. And so many Christians are, are prioritizing their life, but not with a spiritual bent. It's like we make sure that, you know, we have this and that and all this, but, you know, when it comes to our worship time, eh, that's negotiable. Comes to our prayer time, eh, that's negotiable. Comes to our time in the Word, that's negotiable. Comes to being at church, that's negotiable. And then we wonder why we struggle. <laughs> because our spirit is starving. But yet we make sure we got, you know, three square meals a day and maybe even a few snacks in between. But what about our spirit? So again, this principle goes way beyond even what James is talking about here. I just want to encourage all of us, again, including myself, let's make sure in the day in which we live where there's so much distraction and so many other things we can get caught up in that we are making sure that we take time every day to feed our spirit in the Lord and to strengthen our spirit in the Lord. And then finally, verse 6, he says, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. In this context, the word condemned, again, is a, it's a word that speaks about the court, law, jury, justice. And basically what he's saying is you who have a lot of this world stuff, you use your wealth and influence to intimidate and manipulate the justice system. Those who are really wealthy can pay off judges or whatever, or they just seem to be able to 
to slide by in the justice system, but those who have very little, the justice system seems to come down hard on. Now listen, folks. If we think that that's just something that happens in our lifetime, James says, no, no, that was happening even back 2,000 years ago in his day, in Israel, where he saw that those who had more were treated differently in the justice system than those that had less. And that they used their power and their position and their influence to get their own way. And not just in the justice system, but in life in general. They would sort of throw their, as we say, weight around because of who they were and because of their bank account. And they could get their way because of what they had materially. And James just is saying to all of us, that might really get under your skin, but that's the world. But he says, the Lord's coming. And remember, if you're on the other side of that and you're crying to the Lord about those that are oppressing you and not treating you fairly and equitably, he's already heard. He's your warrior. Let him fight your battle for you. Because notice, I love this. James says at the very end of this, he says, the righteous person, he won't resist you. Now, James is not saying that all the time we as Christians should just be doormats and just let people walk all over us. That's not what he's saying by saying the righteous person won't resist you. But what he is saying is, he's, remember, he's got this picture of the righteous person in this context is someone who doesn't have the wealth, the power, the position, the influence that the person who's oppressing them does. And so he's simply saying, just realistically, logically, you may not have any way to fight the one who's fighting you. But trust God. Trust God. He is the Lord of hosts, and he stands behind you like an army. And if God wants to intervene and do something, God can do it. And if he chooses not to do it, then there's a very good reason he's not doing it, Maybe he just wants us to trust him, or maybe he's going to work in this oppression and injustice in some way to, for his glory or to reach somebody else. We don't know the big picture that God does, but God simply says, trust me. Even if you can't do anything about what's happening to you, he says, God's going to make it right one day. And God will vindicate his people. You can bank on that. In fact, I want to take you to a couple verses in closing tonight. First, if you'll go over with me to Romans chapter 12, or I guess back to Romans chapter 12. I'm going to begin at verse 18. Paul says, do not, or excuse me, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Romans 12, 18. 
Do not avenge yourselves, dear friends, but give place to God's wrath, because God is the ultimate avenger. We hear that term a lot, right, with all the superhero movies, the Avengers, right? Well, guess what? God is the real Avenger. And God is the one that will take vengeance and vindicate his people. So that's why he says, do the best you can to stretch yourself out and live peaceably with everyone. And if you've been wronged, don't seek vengeance yourself. Give place, verse 19, to God's wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God says, if somebody has wronged you, I'll make sure it is righted one day. I will make sure that it's taken care of one day. I will make sure that vindication happens and that the injustices are reversed. I will deal with it. Trust me, God says, because I'm the Lord of hosts. And it's only when we have that hope and that that truth is resonating in our hearts and minds every day can we follow through then with verse 20 and 21. Rather, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing this, you will be heaping burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Boy, do we need to hear that today, even as Christians, right, in the world in which we live. And then 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. And this is Jesus. And I didn't even take you to Isaiah tonight. You want to talk about one who did not resist, and he could have. Remember, he even said, Pilate, I could call 10,000 angels if I wanted to. I could even vaporize you myself just by speaking the word. But Isaiah the prophet says, even though he was a lamb being led to slaughter, he did not open up his mouth. When they placed a crown of thorns upon him, he did not resist. When they drove the nails into his hands, into his feet, he didn't put up a fight. What did he do? 1 Peter 2, 23. When he was maligned, he did not answer back. When he suffered, he threatened no retaliation, but committed himself to God who judges justly. Even the Son of God said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I'm trusting you in all this. You're, you're going to settle the accounts. That's faith. See, we, part of even as Christians, where we could start to go off the rails is, we want to see everything made right now. And, and somehow we even maybe have this false hope that somehow our government or our government officials or our politicians or the people of the world somehow are going to just wake up one day and everything is going to be rainbows and unicorns on the earth. And there's not going to be any more injustice or inequity or anything. No. No, that, that's unrealistic. That's not biblical. But God said, though this is the way it's going to be on the earth, I want my people to be different. I want you to trust me. I hear your cries. I know exactly what's going on. And everything that's wrong is going to be righted by me one day. Because when I come, everything 
changes forever. And if you're in a position where you can do something about what's happening to you, I think God would say, do it. Do it as long as it's honoring to him and you maintain your witness, but do it if you can. But I think James here, and especially verse 6, is saying, if you're a Christian, especially a righteous person, and someone is oppressing you, someone is wronging you, someone is doing something to you because they have some kind of power over you, and there's simply nothing you can do about it because you don't have the power and the position and the influence and the wealth that they have, and you feel like you have no one to fight for, James is saying, oh, my friend, the ultimate avenger of the universe is fighting for you, and he is always by your side. He is the Lord of hosts, and he will take care of things one day. Don't avenge yourself. Make room for God to deal with these folks. And let God take care of it one day. Because he will when he comes. Let's pray. God, thank you that even though this passage that we look through and that we walk through tonight maybe primarily directed towards those that don't even have a relationship with you who are caught up in, in earthly and worldly and material things, who live their life for the things that really don't matter, and then when their life is over, they have nothing eternal to show for it. But yet, God, even as Christians, as we walk through these verses tonight, there's a lot of good reminders for us, too. There's even a lot of hope, Lord, and reassurance for us in these verses as well. For we are reminded, God, that you are coming, that's for sure. And that when you come, every wrong will be righted. Every injustice will be made right. Everything that's bad is going to be made good. And that forever and ever, your people will dwell in perfection and righteousness. So God, I pray tonight that we would keep in mind eternity is coming. The Lord is coming, and when he comes, everything changes. And that even now, God, you are the Lord of hosts. You are a mighty warrior in our midst. You can deliver us, and you will fight our battles because you are a mighty man of war. And you've never lost a battle yet, and you never will, God. So I pray that we would just entrust our lives, our families, our church, everything, Lord, that we have over to you knowing that at any point, if you want to intervene and you want to take care of something, there is no one or nothing in this universe that can stop you, God. And if you choose not to intervene in a certain time frame, God, there's a very good reason for it, and we just have to trust your timing. So God, be with us as your people. 
and help us to continue to live for eternal things when so many around us are living for earthly things. Help us to invest in eternity. Help us to make our treasure not only you, but spiritual things, so that when we do eventually leave this earth, we go to be with our treasure. We're not separated from our treasure. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. We'll see you next week.